And he ends his promise to the Philippians by telling them that God would supply all their needs according to the riches of the glory in Christ Jesus. That was the thrust of his whole letter. God will take care of you according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. Now that means much differently than what we think it means a lot of time. It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to fix all our problems. It doesn't mean that we're going to uh, uh, have every financial aspect taken care of. But it means within or without, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because His incomparable riches are not only on the outside of my circumstances, but the inside of my circumstances. Amen? So this morning, we're going to back up one book to the book of Ephesians. And it's not that we are necessarily going backwards according to the timeline of his writing. Because the letters in the New Testament are not arranged in the order they were written. Rather, they're arranged from longest to shortest book. So we're going to come... Follow along his urging to the Philippians and see what counteracts that or, or complements that rather in the book of Ephesians. I want to start our reading this morning in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. And it says this, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... Do not cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints." And what is exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power. May God bless the reading of His word. Last week we talked about the fact that all our needs will be met according to the riches of Christ Jesus. But this morning I want to ask the question, what is the purpose of our heavenly riches is it simply so we can be a heavenly riches hoarder? So that we can be a hoarder of blessings? So that we can be a collector and a stockpiler of blessings? Or is there a greater purpose? Well, you see, I believe as we've been talking about in the past several weeks, that riches are a tool for a greater end, for a greater purpose. Whether they be earthly riches or spiritual riches, riches are simply a tool for another purpose. Riches, for example, earthly riches can be used for evil, can be used for joy, can be used for the kingdom. I believe that God wants those who know how to make money to do so, so that the church can accomplish great things by digging wells in Haiti, by building a mission house for missionaries, and by building structures like a family life center so that families and individuals can be trained for the Great Commission. I believe God's destiny for riches is that they be used for the kingdom. 
But I'm not going to go totally down the route that says God wants everyone to be rich. We know that's not the case. Because not necessarily does everyone have the ability to manage their assets properly. Or to prevent it from consuming them. Matter of fact, for the most case of Christian history, the church has existed in what we call poverty. And guess what? It's still spread. The gospel still spread even in the midst of poverty. The gospel is still spreading in Africa even in the midst of poverty. The gospel is still spreading in Mexico even in the midst of poverty. So it's not just material riches that accomplishes the purpose of God. You see, what I want you to see this morning is that riches are a tool to accomplish a greater purpose. You see, the way that we manage earthly riches is a reflection of how we manage heavenly riches. If we manage earthly riches well, then I believe we will also manage heavenly riches well. But the opposite is also true. A lot of time people who are a waster of earthly riches are also a waster of heavenly riches. Because we haven't understood that all things are a tool for a greater purpose. And this is what he says in verse 18. He says, I want your your eyes and your heart to be enlightened so that you may see the hope in which you are called the riches of his glorious inheritance. So first of all, he says, listen, I want you to be opened to the riches that are there in Christ Jesus. And once you see the riches in Christ Jesus, then we will begin to understand how they apply to our life properly. Everyone still with me, say amen. Amen. You see, just like earthly riches are not simply for the purpose of us enjoying them, so also heavenly riches have a greater purpose than us simply enjoying them. Number one, we see in... Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we see the invitation for all believers to heavenly riches. He wants us all to understand that, be enlightened. But secondly, I believe he goes on to tell us, later on in his uh, uh, letter, he tells us the result of heavenly riches. I want you to turn over to chapter 3. All right, And uh, we, we come there, at the beginning of his sentence is verse 14, chapter 3, 14, and this is where he's going to speak. He says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might, through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which patches knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Somebody say filled this morning. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, he talks about the invitation to understand the riches of his glory. But now he starts talking about the result of understanding those. 
And in specific, verse 17, he says, once we see that, then Christ properly dwells in our heart. The purpose of understanding the riches of God is so that Christ can dwell in our heart. And the heart is the root of our passions. The heart is the root of our purpose. The heart is the root of our existence. I mean, it's everything we want. That's our heart. That Christ may dwell in our heart through faith. Aha! Now we are beginning to see the purpose of heavenly riches. That the knowledge of heavenly things leads to Christ properly dwelling in our hearts. Now let me tell you what you get for being a Christian. Alright? You don't get earthly pleasure. You don't get a boss who's going to be nice to you. You don't get the American dream that you've always wanted. You don't get all those things that we call lusts and wants and desires. We don't get none of those. What we do get is Jesus Christ in all His glory. That's what we get as being a Christian. Jesus Christ in all His glory. And not only is this a latter thing that we receive in the fullness of heaven, but according to Ephesians chapter 3, this is a present thing that Paul wants the believers to know that Christ dwelling in our hearts is the embodiment of human existence. It is the embodiment, the pinnacle, if you will, of everything that God has created you to be. There is no more supreme achievement in your life than Christ dwelling in your heart. I don't care how many businesses you've ran, how much money you've made, how many people you govern, the highest pinnacle is that Christ dwells in your heart. So, church, I want you to forgive me if I have put your eye on anything in this Christian life as an object of your affection other than Jesus Christ. He alone is our treasure. He alone is our joy. He alone is our peace. Not what He brings, but Him. Because what Apostle Paul said last week is, He's going to bring you tribulation, persecution, thorns in the flesh, beatings, imprisonments, whippings, family's going to disown you, friends are going to disown you. It's not about what Christ brings, it's about Christ. I didn't marry my wife to get country ham yesterday morning, but praise God, it was just an added benefit. I married her because I enjoy her, and the funny thing is, the more I enjoy her, the more country ham shows up at breakfast. I don't know if it works the way in your household, but praise the Lord, God instituted favor on mine. You see, we come into a relationship surely for the purpose of enjoying the object of our affection. That implies, that implies that we want Christ. That implies that we desire Christ. To be received of Him means we desire and are hungry for Him. This is why most Christians don't get Jesus. is because they're not thirsting for Jesus. 
They think Jesus is simply going to give them all the things they wanted in their life once they became a Christian. Well, guess what? I'm broken down. I've exhausted every pathway. I don't have the good job. I don't have the good family. I don't have the good friends. And once I come to Jesus, I'll get this, this, and this, and this. That's the wrong reason to come to Jesus. Praise God, once I got Jesus, I don't give a rip about anything else. Because within or without, I have Jesus. If you don't find your treasure in Jesus, you won't find treasure anywhere else. You won't find treasure in a spouse. You won't find treasure in a job. You won't find it in a car. You won't find it in having a child. We must find our joy in Christ alone or we won't find it anywhere else. Here's the thing, if your joy is in Christ, then no benefit or no subtraction can take away that joy. If there are benefits, it simply magnifies the joy. If there are subtractions, it simply makes the joy so much sweeter. Do you see how that works? The root of it is Jesus Christ. All pleasure on this earth is fleeting, all happiness is fleeting, but the joy that is found in Christ will last forever. That He dwells in our hearts, our passion, our desire. You see, a long time in the evangelistic circles, we've told people that invite Jesus to come into your heart, and we haven't even told them what that means. It's not a physical place. It is the root of desire. When you pray that Christ dwell in your heart, it is the root of your desire to where Christ becomes everything you want. Christ becomes everything you need. The fulfillment of who you are is now because of your identity in Christ Jesus you see, what happens is when people invite Jesus to live in their heart, they got a whole bunch of other things living in there too. They got the girlfriend living in their heart. They got the job living in their heart. They got the nice car they want living in their heart. And Jesus gets crammed in there along with the other stuff. But here's the thing. The real thing is Jesus becomes the foundation of every desire that there is. And when Jesus is in there, there's no room for anything else to consume the passion. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's all it is. I want Him. I want His will, His glory in my life. See, I don't even have the words to give you today of a description for this. And that's pretty odd. That's a big problem for a preacher who writes multiple sermons a week. Each sermon averaging over 2,000 words. That equates in a year's time to almost a quarter of a million words a year. And I'm at a loss for words about the joy in Christ. It is something so deep and mysterious, it's hard for me to describe it to you. So I'm going to need you to formulate your own words today. I want you to think of the greatest earthly moment you've ever experienced. Robert, it could have been when you won the pie-eating contest at Bass Pro Shop. I want you to think of the greatest moment in your earthly experience. For some of you, it was when your spouse walked down the aisle. For others of you, it was when your spouse walked out the door. It happens sometimes. For some of you, it's when your child was born. But for others, it was when your child left. 
But literally, I want you to think of the greatest experience you've had on this earth. I want you to think about that joy. And now, I want you to multiply it by a million. Can your mind contain that? Can your heart even fathom that? That's beginning to get a glimpse of the joy in Jesus. God's purpose for you enjoying Christ. Where He is so satisfying, nothing else matters. So sweet, nothing can ever come close. See, one of the reasons we have a lot of Christians who are confused in their life is because we've preached a Jesus of small joy. And if Jesus is of small joy, then guess what? All these other things in life are of small joy and they're equal. My friend, Jesus is supreme joy. He is supreme satisfaction. Nothing comes close. And when you start enjoying God on that level, you'll no longer seek the earthly satisfactions that are just fleeting glimpses of eternal joy. You see, if you have the joy of Christ that comes from Christ dwelling in your heart, then you will know it. No one can convince you otherwise. It doesn't matter what you hear. Man, people say, I can't I lose my salvation. My question is, can you lose the joy that comes from Jesus? <laughs> you see, if someone thinks they lost it, my friend, they never found it. You're not going to lose the sweetest thing in life. Because once it's there, everything else is secondary. The other thing is true, if you don't have the joy of Christ that comes from Christ dwelling in your heart, you will know it also. You will know that you're always seeking for it. You will know that you don't really have it and that you're trying to find it. And that should worry us today. You see, my fear is, actually, I believe it is my knowledge that many are sitting within the pews of American churches within the comfort of religion and because you have existed in a religious system which has told you that the evidence of your salvation comes from the conviction of sin or guilt or condemnation you think as long as you have those things that you're sure but my friend that is not the evidence of Christ the evidence of guilt and condemnation is that you're a sinner. Not a Christian. The evidence of Christianity is joy. You see, I urge us today to check our joy. Check our passion, check our satisfaction level. Because if Christ is not there, then the evidence of us being a new creature is not there. And my urge for you today is that you run into the arms of a Savior and you cling to Him with all your might. That nothing would take you away. I've heard too many, uh, I've heard too many preachers say that you can know you're a Christian if you're convicted by sin. My friend, the job of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin is for the purpose of the lost, not for the purpose of the righteous. 
And me and you can sit down and have a Bible study about this. If you're convicted of sin, then you're a sinner. But if you're convicted of joy, then you're a Christian. You see, the Bible says you know you're a Christian, that Christ dwelling within your heart. And I heard people say, well, pastor, how do I know I'm a Christian? And they'll say, do you know when you sin? Of course we do! Any fuddy-duddy knows that. Go steal a candy bar from the store. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know you aren't supposed to do that. The role of the Holy Spirit and the moral law upon the heart of every person in the world is that they know that they're a sinner. Everyone knows that. That's not the evidence of salvation. The evidence is what is the supreme desire of your heart. Is Christ what you want more than anything? Is He what you want more than everything? If we cannot say yes to that, then you're not a Christian. You're not a new creature. (coughs) If we don't want Him with everything, we don't want Him at all. Jesus is not a side dish. He is not dessert to the entree. He is not an excursion that you sign up for on the cruise of life. Jesus is everything. He must be your all or He is nothing. Is there some joyful Christians that can testify today to the truth of that? That when Jesus is everything, you have everything? We see the result of heavenly riches is that Christ dwells in our hearts. But lastly, I want us to understand the purpose. And verse 17 in chapter 3 goes on to tell us this. Because Christ dwells in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, once we understand the riches that are in Christ Jesus, then He dwells in our hearts through that faith. And because He dwells in our heart, then our whole being is filled Filled with His goodness. I think when the Bible says that He dwells in our heart, it means that He is the root bed of our desire. And because He is the root of our desire, when we desire Christ, God gives us the desire of our heart. And therefore, our life becomes filled with all the fullness of God. This Friday, my wife and I split wood and stacked wood for about half a day. And Friday evening, I was telling someone that we had stacked about two cords of wood that day. They were asking, how much is a cord of wood? So I began to describe the width and the length and the height of a cord. The width is four foot. The length is eight foot. And the height is four foot. We were having this conversation about how much is a cord. Well, friend, let me tell you for a moment about the width of God's love. You see, it is so wide that it reaches every nation. The love of God is so wide that it reaches Jew and Gentile. It reaches those who are in law, those who are without law. It reaches reaches the black, the white, and the Mexican. It is a love so wide that it transforms the heterosexual and the homosexual just equally. 
The love of God is so wide that it'll reach the Baptist, it'll reach the Presbyterian, it'll reach the Methodist, it'll reach the Catholic, even C.S. Lewis's testimony that the love of God is wide enough that it transforms an atheist for the glory of God. The love of God is wide. Secondly, what about the length of God's love? If we can comprehend that today. It's long enough that it reaches out to an eight-year-old young man like I was. And at eight years old, put my faith in Jesus Christ. An eight-year-old with such limited knowledge, such limited mental capacity, but even the love of God reaches that long way and grabs a young man like me. The love of God is long enough that it reaches all the way to our teenagers at the Disciple Now Conference and transform. Robert, i got to change my notes. I put two teenagers. I'm going to have to put three teenagers now. Three teenagers got transformed by the power of God because it's that long. The love of God is long enough that no matter how much or how little you have sinned, you can't outrun the long love of God. It's long enough to reach the alcoholic. It's long enough to reach the drug addict. It's long enough to reach the murderer, the idolater, and even Apostle Paul, his testimony, that the most self-righteous Pharisee still can't outrun that long love of God. Can somebody testify this morning? You've been chased by that love of God. Love of God chased you when you were fleeing. You were an enemy of God in your mind. You had no concern for spiritual things, but the love of God chased you down. It's that long. What about the height? My friend, the love of God is high enough to be higher than the wisdom of this world. Yes, the love of God makes the wisdom of this world look foolish in the eyes of God. It's high enough to reach the scientists. It's high enough to reach the atheists. It's high enough to reach the lawyers and doctors for God's kingdom. It's even high enough to reach the legalistic Baptists who stopped learning new doctrine two decades ago. It's high enough to reach the politicians and it's high enough to reach the pediatricians. No one is above the love of God. It's high enough to reach the school system and it's high enough to reach the president. You believe, let me say that this morning. Anybody live in America today? You watch the news lately, Miss Kathy? The love of God can reach Capitol Hill. I wish some of these right-wing conservatives in the Tea Party would start getting on their face night and day and praying for the salvation of the Congress, praying for the salvation of the President. Then maybe they would stop calling it the Tea Party and start calling it the Plea Party. Amen? People who are willing to intercede for the direction of our government that kills millions of babies every year can't even find the money to pay its own bills. Oh, I believe the love of God can reach the White House. And as I began looking at the Apostle's description of the love of Christ, I realized that he listed the the width, the length, and the height. But he throws in a four-dimensional category. You see, when I described the cord of wood, I described the width, the length, and the height, and that was about as far as I could go. But he says the depth of God's love so that you can comprehend the depth of God's love. This Greek word here is bathos, where we get bath. 
Every time you get in the bath on Saturday night, getting cleaned up for church, you're getting into the bathos, the depth, the submerging. He says, I want you to know the bath of God's love. I want you to know the bathos. And I had to look in some other scriptures upon how this word is used, and I found out that he was speaking in 2 Corinthians 8, talking about the Macedonian church. He said that they gave from their bathos poverty, their deep poverty, their extreme poverty. So when you see this word bathos, it's not just a reference to the width, the length, or the height. It's a reference to the extremity of God's love. You see, the love of God is so deep that it cannot be searched unless the Spirit searches. The love of God is so deep that I've met pastors who came out of seminary and couldn't understand the love of God like a little child can. The love of God is so deep that I've been in classes with theology professors that had a PhD and had searched the things of God so long that they became lost in the idolatry of their own understanding and they they couldn't talk about the love of God like most of you could here today. The love of God is so deep that no academic submarine can search its depths. It takes a vehicle of the Spirit. As verse 19 says, knowing this love surpasses knowledge, praise the Lord. And to know this love surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. This love surpasses the knowledge that whatever situation you're going through, God is still in control. This love of God surpasses knowledge of whoever has hurt you this week to know that our satisfaction doesn't come from others in life, that it comes from Christ alone. And I can still be hurt, but with joy. That love surpasses knowledge. This love surpasses knowledge that your current trial is all part of God's sovereign plan in your life for His glory. My friend, when you're filled with the fullness of God, we are blessed. No matter what may come. That's why I played that video earlier. Man, did you hear not the children singing? Did you hear the people shouting in the service? Could you hear the people shouting? That's blessed people. You know, I've realized that the object of our worship is not just because God wants it. But the object of our worship is because people see there's a desire within us supernaturally. The world doesn't desire supernatural things, but worship reveals a supernatural desire. Worship reveals a supernatural longing. And when people see that, they say, wow, what do they desire? So what is the final result? What is the final result? What does all this accomplish? This is that if we are filled to all measure for the fullness of God, it means that we lack nothing. It means that we have everything in Christ Jesus. It means that through every situation, we are filled with the fullness of God. And nothing can touch that joy. Nothing can touch that peace. Now I'm going to give you a test this morning to see if that transformation has happened to you. To see if you've been filled with the fullness of God. So let me ask you, what has been stressing you out? If you've been stressed out by the things of this world, by family situations, by financial situations, material things, job things, all those fit in the cup of our heart. 
And when the cup of our heart is filled with stress and worries, we're not filled with the fullness of God. We're filled with stress and worry. But the opposite is true. When we're filled with the fullness of God, there's no room in that cup for stress and worry. Because I'm filled with the fullness of God. I'm filled with the knowledge of salvation because of His finished work on the cross. That the knowledge of the glorious riches that I have in Christ Jesus, there is no room for problems to take root in my heart. There's no room for stress and worry to take root in my heart because I'm filled with the fullness of God. When we are not full, when negativity is present and problems are present, then our life and our days become consumed by trying to achieve fullness to get rid of the problem. It will never work. We will never find peace and joy by trying to get rid of problems because as soon as you get rid of one problem, another one will come take its place. And you'll be in a constant cycle of depression. As long as we're on this problem cycle, we'll never be able to see, we'll never be able to love effectively, we'll never be able to minister effectively. Because if I'm not full of God, that means there's other lack in my life, negativity, complaint, worry. And long as those things are lack in my life, I won't minister from a sense of joy. I won't minister from a place of fullness. I'll constantly be treating my wife out of a sense of lack. I'll be treating my friends out of a sense of lack. And therefore trying to get from them something that can only come from Christ. But once we have fullness, then I can love you just for you. Not to get anything. Not to want anything. The purpose of this fullness is not ultimately for you. The purpose of the fullness is Christ. is not so you can just enjoy it. It's so that people can see that whatever you're going through, that you have a supernatural joy, a supernatural peace, and they say, man, I want what they have. My friend, the joy of Christ surpasses knowledge. The joy of Christ surpasses the things of this world. The joy of Christ surpasses material possessions. And here's what I want you to know through Apostle Paul. That when we realize the riches of Christ, we will be eternally full. I implore you to search your own heart today. I'm going to have a time of prayer as our musicians come. Father God, I ask you in Jesus' name to take this scripture this morning. This urging this persuading that Christ become that Christ become the root of our passions that Christ becomes the root of our heart so that we can enjoy you from a sense of completeness so that we can love others from a sense of completeness so that we can give all things from a sense of completeness knowing that you are worthy My prayer today, Father, whatever you're working on anyone's heart, have your will and way. God, if there's someone ready to run to you with everything they have and cling to you as Savior, I pray that they would come this morning during the invitation. God, if there's a family ready to come and get plugged into the house of God, I pray that they come and get plugged in out of a a sense of fullness, not because they need something, not because they want something, but because they're ready to serve. Lord, whatever you have, be, be sovereign in this place, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. Stand in the house of God today as we sing.